David Pensick, Communications Manager for Sklo Center Region Library. We are located in the heart of downtown State College on the corner of Beaver Avenue and Allen Street. And this episode is dropping on Wednesday, February 6th. So happy February. It's our first episode of the new month. And I know as I talk about, as I talk today, uh, we had some uh, sprinkler issues over the first weekend in February. And we appreciate, just want to say appreciate everyone's cooperation, patience, uh, as we dealt with that and some limited service. But thank you so much for your understanding as we uh, got through that. And, and and you know, obviously our top priority is to be able to provide full services to you, our patrons. So thank you again for all your understanding. And this is why it's, it's, it's Library Lovers Month, and this is why we just love serving this community Everyone was very patient and, and understanding of our situation, so thank you again. For this episode, we have a conversation with Sasha Meinrath. Sasha is a, he's done a couple other programs at SCLO. He's, just, he's one of the leading experts in technology and telecommunications. He's having a program coming up, a SCLO Labs program coming up on Saturday, February 16th, that deals with practical tools for digital privacy and obviously protecting our information in this in this technology age is paramount I, I think for many of us and we've seen issues of, of privacy being you know with hacking and some of the stuff that goes on social media and collecting information about us and Sasha has just become a renowned expert he goes down to Washington talks with uh, politicians and leaders there his official title at Penn State is the Palmer Chair in Telecommunications, and he's director of XLab, which is an innovative think tank focusing on the intersection of vanguard technologies and public policy. And he's just a leading advocate for making sure our information stays private and 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 the line that sometimes gets blurred between uh, what should be private, what dealing with national security issues. So he 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 really has kept up to date you know how difficult it is to keep up to date with all the new technologies he keeps up to date with it and he's become uh this this renowned leader and respected leader that you know he meets with politicians so um i think it's going to be a great program on february 16th uh from 10:30 to 11:30 uh a.m. in our community room but until then here's our conversation with Sasha Meinrath uh talking about technology and and privacy Sasha, thank you for joining me My pleasure. Um, to talk about this important topic. Um, first of all, just could you talk a little bit about your background and and how this became sort of a, a passion, or you you become an international expert on this, and yeah. you know, what any moments that for yeah, you? I, I've had a long and winding path into this realm of tech policy and privacy and data security. Uh, my background's actually all uh, academically speaking in psychology originally. 
and looking at, in particular, kind of, you know, these intersections between humans and their environments. And uh, I got into communications around, I guess, late 1990s, really, through community media. I was very active with our local community radio station and helped uh, found sort of a low-power FM radio station. I founded a community newspaper, one of a community newspaper that's actually still wow. still alive <laughs> there today, you go. A, a rarity in <laughs> yes. itself. Um, and in building these community media, kind of got into technology and in particular telecom, thinking about, and again, this is late 90s, thinking about, well, what's the distribution medium for future media? And that led into thinking about, you know, again, from psychology and how you empower people via media to, well, now that you've created media, how do you distribute media to the people? Mm -hmm. And in the late 1990s, when dial-up modems were like the very (laughs) bleeding edge, we started thinking about, well, what if... What if everyone had broadband connectivity? What would that look like? And at the time, of course, this is science fiction for the late 1990s. Uh, but we started thinking about like how you build, how you architect these kinds of systems. And that led me into this realm of communications, but also into problem areas where we kept finding that the limitations were not technological. They were political that we had architected our laws for a broadcast era and we were entering something else. We were entering this period of time where for the first time true two-way communications would become normative and nothing was set up to facilitate that. Right? That we were coming off of, you know, the Telecommunications Act of 1996 which, by the way, is still the last major overhaul of our telecommunications law 20-odd years ago, uh, into the space where the very first what became known as Wi-Fi devices were first hitting the consumer markets and where, for the first time, people were talking about something beyond dial-up modem speed as being available outside of the academy. And so it was a very fertile period, these, I'd say, five to ten years, from, say, 98, 99 to 2004, 2005. And I fell in with a bunch of, you know, 'er ne'er-do-wells, basically tinkerers and techies and hackers, and we would gather in my living room and build, prototype out what routers might look like if they could be high speed and interconnect household to household. And it was a very exciting time. We were building technologies that the experts in the field were telling us could not be built. And we were succeeding. I had, you know, again, one of these super geek techie friends that had what was called a T1 line. The blazing fast speed of 1.5 megabits per second, right? Which is about a quarter what you would need to actually stream Netflix. But at the time, this is, you know, 50 times faster than a dial-up modem. And he had a connection to his house. And the problem we were solving for is how do we get that connection down the street? 
And so during all of this, we're building these technologies, deploying prototypes around the community, connecting household to household uh, in ways that had never been done before, and realizing that it's not clear that what we're doing is fully legal. It wasn't clear that it was illegal. It was just sort of in this no man's land where we're like, ah, gee, I hope nobody calls the FCC on us. And my solution, of course, was then to talk to the FCC to start this process of saying like, hey, so we're building this thing. It's incredibly useful. We think broadband's going to be a thing. And um, the FCC was reluctant. Uh, This is a time, this was the last uh, Republican administration before Obama. And uh, what we were facing was a an administration that, for all intents and purposes, viewed broadband as a luxury good. Mm. And in fact, the chairman of the FCC, Michael Powell, at the time, this is 2005-ish, had described broadband or the lack of broadband availability as equivalent to a Mercedes divide. That's how the federal government in 2015 or 2005 was viewing the necessity of broadband. So as you could imagine, facing a policy sphere that was in essence anathema to what we viewed as an empowering technology kind of was a radicalizing moment. This led to me saying like, oh, there's got to be more that we can do. And in 2007, I got headhunted to come join uh, a project called the Wireless Future Program at a think tank called New America Foundation and went to D.C. and quickly figured out that there was no technological acumen, this is 2007-ish, in D.C., that in essence decisions were being made, but nobody understood the technologies. And so in 2008, created something called the Open Technology Institute, built it up into a multi-multi-million dollar public interest group with the purpose of bringing technological experts into the policy space. This is all a long story to say that the way I got into this space, the way I, I gleaned information and became an expert was through mainly osmosis. Was, <laughs> hanging out with such unbelievably talented experts that simply by leading projects and interfacing with people on a daily basis for now 20 years, I learned about how technologies actually work. Hmm. And that still, even to this day, makes me a very rare bird in D.C. A technologist that can talk to humans is not (laughs) often found. Um, And the need is still quite shockingly necessary. That now we don't talk about, you know, broadband as a luxury good. That's a win. But the people making decisions are just as naive I will say, about the implications for new technology to our everyday lived lives. That in essence, we are rapidly entering this digital era where technologies are in almost every facet of our lives, but the implications of that integration, the, the, the impacts of having unprecedented data collection and surveillance 
are not well understood and in fact are known, have been documented to create substantial harms and those harms are only the very, very few that we know about. But what we do know is that the detriments that are accruing to society writ large, but especially to the generations that are now digital natives, that are growing up without any pre-digital era, without any parts of their lives that weren't part of this panoptic technological environment, those harms are grand and only growing because our rule of law is so antiquated, so unupdated, so mismatched with these technological realities. Mm. There's so much to, to, to uh, I guess, can you talk about some of the harms that you've seen or, or that are prevalent uh, in society that either people know about or might not be aware of. Sure. You know, there's, and there's many. There's like the outright discrimination. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, when Amazon was caught uh, 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 showing ads to women for lower paying jobs Mm -hmm. than men. Or when Orbitz was caught uh, charging customers that used Macs higher prices for the same flights than PC users. Or any number of different places where new economy, Uber, for example, uh, was found to be discriminating against people of color. And again, this isn't necessarily because you've got a bunch of nefarious ne'er-do-wells that are trying to you know, screw over these you know, protected constituencies. But it is the logical outcome of technologies that are both profit-seeking, but also that don't have proper oversight and accountability. So those are outright discrimination. But then you also have all of these other problems. Take, for example, the problem of hacking. At this point in time, every year, you know, at, at, you know, within the last month, at this point in time, we have, you know, Marriott being hacked and hundreds of millions of people's personal information being stolen. Last year it was Experian, right? And 140 million Americans' data, including incredibly sensitive financial data, stolen. And the price of that, right? The price of fraud on credit cards is in the multi-hundred billion dollar range. This is not free money. This money is paid for. It's the cost is socialized to everyone. We all pay a slight premium on every purchase to defray the cost of that fraud. Now, when I went to Europe in the early 1990s, we were already using the chips in the credit cards. Here in America in 2019, we're still not, at, certainly not at 100%, but even in a vast majority of places using these chips. And the end result is a lot more fraud, a lot more cost. And the people who are directly responsible for that, the credit card companies and the point of sales places and what have you, aren't paying for that. It's not like that comes out of the profits of these financial institutions. 
what it comes out of is the pocketbooks of people that are charged a little bit more annual percentage rate in their credit card fees. And when you expand that into all of the hundreds, if not thousands of institutions hacked every year where personal information is stolen, and then we, the consumer class, are basically told, we're really sorry about that, but that there's no meaningful financial repercussion to those companies, well, it just continues. So every year, hundreds of millions of Americans have their information stolen. And I'm not saying that there's a silver bullet that solves all these problems. What I am saying, however, is that something as simple as a fine for each record that is stolen would change the architecting of that information. Can you imagine if, say, banks were set up in ways where, like, robbers regularly robbed the bank and nobody was like, I think the bank has to do a better job with its security. And yet when you look at these institutions, like they're not liable in any meaningful way. They're not carrying a liability directly tied to people stealing this information. And so if you just said like, look, architect your system's however you want, but know that if that information is stolen, you will be fined, let's say, $1,000 a individual. All of a sudden, within a very short time frame, 99.99% of that disappears. Not because there's one silver bullet, but because people will then architect these systems so that no one user has the capability to access 300 million case files. Why, why is there such a slow or pushback to, I mean, we've heard, you know, there's been a big ado about intellectual property and what happened with Apple and China. Why aren't we hearing more about this, you know, this, which is probably affecting, I don't know how many people, and, and that there should be something done, and why isn't there? So you can lay blames squarely at the feet of both Democratic and Republican administrations that have not made this a priority, that the Federal Trade Commission, the folks tasked to oversee these forms of consumer protection and corporate oversight, have simply refused to do their job. And that's a real problem. It's a real problem that even after so many of these large-scale hacks over multiple years, there's no liability associated with bad information architecture. So if you're a a profit-seeking company and you're trying to weigh, you know, what's the cost of implementing proper compartmentalization of data versus... What's the downside? So the data gets stolen and what? There's no other side of that equation to balance it out, to say it's worth making a $10 million investment on better cybersecurity because we might face a $100 million fine. Without that, there's very little impetus for these companies to change their ways. 
Which is why year after year after year, month after month after month, we keep hearing about these massive data breaches. And, you know, it's a mentality that goes very much up through the most secure environments on the planet, right? Edward Snowden couldn't possibly have gotten access to the kinds of information he got from the NSA except for the incredibly poor compartmentalization at one of the most so-called secure facilities on the planet. I mean, I guess, should people, I mean, I guess there's a couple, you know, what can the general public do? How afraid should they be about this? I mean, should it keep them up at night? Or, um, and, you know, what are some actions they maybe can take? I mean, we should be worried about this. And we should be worried because there's a huge opportunity cost. You know, if every year we're bleeding out $100 billion in resources to this sort of thing, that, that's a real cost. It comes from somewhere. It comes from our buying power. It comes from the fees that we pay. It co- like, and that represents a loss, both individually and generally, generationally, that will never be gotten back. This is, in many ways, this is the role of a functioning government, is to say, look, we need processes put in place to maximize the public benefit. And when it comes to technology, we live in the Wild West. If you can do something with technology, in essence, you're allowed to do it, regardless of whether that's actually in the public good or not. And in many ways, in many ways, like a company would be remiss not to maximize profit given that they're allowed to do a variety of forms of discrimination, no matter how unethical it may seem, because if they don't, their competitor will. And so the role of a functioning government is to set parameters for markets to, to operate in. The role of a functioning government would be to say, like, we really need to ensure that there's a competitive market space for these sorts of things, right? There's a reason why Americans pay more for broadband than other industrialized countries. And the costs are very real. The costs are at the individual level, right? In telecom, for example, we pay about $20 more per month for worse service than citizens of most other highly industrialized countries. And the same is true of our health care. I think OECD or one of these groups just came out showing that we have the worst health care outcomes of any highly industrialized country. And at the same time that they are, we are the worst in outcomes, we pay the highest price per capita. And the reason for that is in many ways, that other countries have deployed technologies, in that case, healthcare, but it could be in a variety of different domains, far more effectively than we have. And that price is very real, and cost in lives, in the case of healthcare, and uh, shows no sign of lessening. In fact, quite the opposite. Things are getting worse. We're paying more over time. We're, we're suffering under increasing detriment of technologies ill-applied or technologies that, once applied, create all sorts of detrimental impacts across society. Is there 
um, a country that you see that it ha- has provides a good model for what you'd like, to, or I'm, or is at least close to? I mean, so, there's there's many yeah. different models, right? I, and again, this is one of those situations where it's like so many countries are doing so many different things that are mm-hmm. operating so, with such better outcomes, and we've chosen to ignore them all, <laughs> right? And that, that to me, you know, having that knowledge, that expertise on what's happening on a global scale. Mm-hmm. It's mind-boggling because it's like, why are we, you know, doubling down on models, on business practices, on regulatory practices, or in many cases, the lack of any regulatory practice that is year after year shown to be ineffective to detrimental when there's so many different things. So like Japan and telecom has a, a regulator that in essence treats telecom as a utility and regulates and ensures that there's no price gouging and that you know the systems are opened up to competitors and other countries have chosen to ensure a, a market competitive a competitive market space so they're like look we're not going to regulate with a heavy hand we're just going to make sure there's a lot of options for consumers to choose from right that would be like uh, South Korea for example right but even you know France, Sweden, like pretty much every other highly industrialized country, has done one thing or the next, and we've ignored them all. The end result is we have an official policy where we pretend that there's a competitive market. And it doesn't take a genius to figure out that I have very few options to choose from when it comes to telecom in my house, or when it comes to healthcare providers or insurance providers, or when it comes to, you know, any form, like, you want to use a credit card? How many options do you really have? Like three, right? You know, and, and within that space, we choose not to regulate but to pretend that spaces are competitive. Take the Experian hack, right? 140-odd million Americans affected by this, and you can't opt out. The data that Experian collects on you Right on all of your credit ranking and usage and loans, you can't say don't give this to Experian. And so you are forced to disclose information to a company with a demonstrable history of failing to protect that information. And the impacts of that, when you steal 140-odd million records with incredibly sensitive financial data, will continue to compound and unfold over ensuing years, perhaps decades. Because our social security numbers aren't going to change. Our credit information is, I won't say completely immutable, but very malleable. I mean, it, it sticks around for years. We all know this. And, you know, is now available literally to the highest bidder. Hmm. Are there... I mean, we wind down are there I mean you might talk about this when you come to school but are there some small steps even that some people can do our patrons would be able to do to protect themselves a little bit at least (laughs) so there's a lot we can do at the individual level kind of the low hanging fruit in essence make us a little bit less palatable than our neighbors Right. There's, there's that you know, famous saying, it's like, how do, you, how do you survive a bear attack? And it's like, run faster than the other guy. Right? Like, yeah. So you just need to be a little bit more secure yeah. 
than somebody else because, again, 99 times out of 100, a hacker isn't going after you. They're going after a thousand people and they'll grab whatever they can. And so if you're just a little more secure, if you've got passwords on your devices, if you encrypt your text messages, if you, you know, anonymize yourself or do some basic stuff, you're less palatable. You're less, it's a much lower probability that you'll be hacked. On the other hand, that does very little to protect us from the kind of corporate hacks that we're seeing more and more of. That requires legal reform. It requires the Federal Communications Commission, the Federal Trade Commission to, to in essence, do their job. Right? They have a mission, an onus to protect us, the people, the citizenry, the residents, the, the consumers of America – from this kind of nefariousness. And for far too long, they haven't done so. They've said this is a very complicated issue, we need to study it more, but it's like during that time, incredible collateral damage has accrued. And that's what needs legislative fixes, it needs leadership change. A lot of these agencies have the power to make these changes unilaterally, they just haven't. And there's a variety of reasons for that. One, in my mind, is the revolving door. If you look at where federal communications commissioners go to, if you look at where federal trade commission commissioners go to, one month they're heading and running these agencies, the next month they're working for the companies that they were tasked to oversee and regulate. And this is an open secret, this revolving door between the agencies tasked to oversee industry and the next job that the heads of these agencies have in those same industries is incredibly problematic. And that, too, requires some meaningful fix. So we'll see what the 116th Congress does. I am not optimistic we'll see a lot, although these are issues where the libertarian right and the progressive left agree. These are also places where the leadership of both parties has been incredibly reluctant to make a foray into. But what I do think is that the, the, the winds of change are upon us. What I see working in D.C. on a weekly basis is that this libertarian right faction, this progressive left faction, are finally beginning to realize that there is common ground, that this need to protect us, the people of the United States, from the detriments caused by, in essence, business models run amok, that is a unifying force. Everyone has the horror story of some bureaucracy, some service, some utility, some something that has caused them incredible, excruciating headaches to get fixed and sometimes doesn't get fixed at all. They just give you the whole, like, we're really sorry about that. <laughs> um, and that has, over time, the not just potential, but probability of creating major shifts, major changes. 
uh, at the legislative, the agency, the regulatory level. And that's what this country desperately, desperately needs. Well, thank you. I mean, if people want more of this, obviously they can come. Uh, but before you leave, a uh, question I ask all, all of our guests is if there has been a book or book books um, that have impacted you either growing up um, mm. or something more recently <laughs> that it, uh, has played a impact has impacted your life or. I mean, there's a number of books that I could point to. Uh, you know, I spent a lot of time backpacking. Mm. Uh, and when you're backpacking, every ounce matters. Uh, and when I was backpacking, I did, uh, at a hostel, somebody grabbed for me the Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, <laughs> which is just a classic, fun book. But to me, it was really illuminating because it was also one of these moments where you were in the right space, you're doing kind of this wild and free thing, and here was a book saying, like, this is really important. Society is at the cusp of a revolution, much like agrarian into industrial, now we're industrial into digital. Sea changes are afoot, and we can't keep doing things the same way we have been for years, decades, and generations. So the people willing to boldly lead, try new things, experience and make known these new digital realities are essential. And so, you know, applying kind of the Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance and industrial, right? Motorcycle maintenance was industrial. But now it's like, you know, somebody needs the Zen and the art of cell phone hackery. Like that, that is what we desperately need. And that book isn't yet written, but it needs to be. Yeah. Well, maybe you're the (laughs) person. Let's see. Yeah. Well, Sasha, thank you so much for joining us. My and, pleasure. Uh, we'll look forward to uh, your visit um, in February. Wonderful. Take thank you. So Saturday, February 16th, starting at 10.30 a.m., it's Sklow Labs with Sasha Meinrath, Practical Tools for Digital Privacy, Sasha is going to be introducing you to several free and easy-to-use tools to protect your privacy and data online. Register online for this. It's at sclolibrary.org. It's going to be held in our community room, a little bit bigger space for this edition of Sclow Labs, but register online at sclolibrary.org. Some other events coming up at Sclow. Well, again, I want to mention it's February, so it's Library Lovers Month. And again, just uh, express our appreciation and our honor to serve this region. And whether you're a volunteer, whether you're a patron, whether you are donate money, thank you so much, uh, Sklo. We couldn't do any of this without you. So thank you so much. And please let us know, you know, good or bad, you know, let us know how we're doing. If there's things that you love about the library, we'd love to hear that, obviously. So post that on social media or contact us. If there are things you'd like to see us improve on or, or have suggestions, again, also contact us. So, again, it's just, it's, we just love serving this region. And thank you again for your patience and understanding this past weekend when we were uh, dealing with some sprinkler issues. 
On Saturday, February 9th, a young writer's workshop. This is for uh, if, you're, if your child is interested, if a child is interested in submitting work for the Write and Illustrate Your Own Book Contest that the Children's Department holds. There's a writing work, young writer's workshop being held on Saturday, February 9th with Ann Bergevin. You have to register for that online. There's limited space. It's at sclowlibrary.org. It starts at 2 p.m. Submissions for the contest are being accepted until March 12th, so still time to do that. It's for uh, the Write and Illustrate Your Own Book Contest, great contest that the Children's Department holds. There's also a writing contest for Center County Reads, as, as we continue on with that, and Vulture with, by Katie Fallon. Go to centercountyreads.org for information on all the events that are going to be coming up, and also the contest, and just some great things coming up in February and March, and of course capped off by Katie's visit on April 4th. Winter reading for teens and adults uh, has started and continues on to the end of March. If you haven't registered, you can register now. And if you've done summer reading, just go to the same site and you can use your same username and password. If you haven't done summer reading, obviously create a new account. But go on Quest, set goals, obviously get, get a, have a great chance to win some great prizes. So this is a new program. And so far we've gone off to a good start with people entering it. seems like people are very interested in this. So we're excited for our winter reading for teens and adults. On Sunday, February 10th, Children's Department, a love for the love of reading. Celebrate Valentine's Day in our Children's Department. There's going to be some activities there on Sunday, February 10th from 2 to 4 p.m. And all the information on all our events are on our website, sclowlibrary.org, social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And we just have a lot, like I said, February is a short month, but we have packed a lot in, so hopefully you get to take part in that. So until next week, uh, you know, hopefully everyone's staying warm and enjoying the, uh, the weather out there. And uh, until next week, we hope to see you at Slow Library.